I don't look too unkempt, right? <laughs> I was just thinking that myself. I look like shit. I ran a comb through my hair after getting up, but... Uh, this might be the first time in my life I've recorded this podcast without showering. So you're in good company. Well, look, if you woke up and look like this, you know, winning on a Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, it's Wednesday. <laughs> I'm flattered. Hello and welcome to this primary reaction edition of the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. We had planned on recording this late night on Tuesday, but the results were too close to call in the Pennsylvania Republican Senate primary. And so we wanted to wait until we got more results. Turns out that race is still too close to call. Dr. Mehmet Oz and David McCormick are currently tied at 31%. They're separated by 2,000 votes. Oz leading there. If the candidates are separated by half a point or less, ultimately in Pennsylvania, there's an automatic recount. So it could be some time before we know the final results in that race. So we are going to record this podcast now, and we will follow up when we actually have the results there because we have other results to talk about as well. Of course, we've been tracking Trump endorsements throughout this primary season so far. Two Trump endorsees lost last night. Those are Representative Madison Cawthorn, who got a lot of attention in the run-up to this primary because of his scandals and baggage and so on. And then that's also the Lieutenant Governor of Idaho who was challenging the sitting governor of Idaho in the gubernatorial primary there. She lost by 20 points. And so it looks pretty clear that a Trump endorsement is not able to overcome significant challenges, although, of course, it is influential, as we've talked about in the J.D. Vance circumstance. And, you know, if Mehmet Oz does ultimately win the primary race in Pennsylvania, that'll be another instance. So let's talk about it all. And there's lots of house races that we can get into as well. I will say Our colleague Nathaniel Rakich planned on joining us this morning, but there's currently a 45-minute long fire drill going on in his apartment building, which made it impossible. But here with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Welcome, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Hey, Jeff. Also with us is elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Good morning, Galen. So how's everyone doing? Everyone uh, slept really well? Yeah, lots of sleep, feeling fresh. Let's go. Yeah, let me tell you, I'm just uh, gangbusters this morning. A special treat for anyone who is watching this on YouTube. We all look our absolute best this morning. JK, definitely just listen to the podcast version. Don't watch the YouTube version (laughs) of this podcast, please. All right, Jeff, I know you've been looking into the outstanding vote in the Republican Senate primary in Pennsylvania. What can you tell us about where that vote is coming from and if it seems likely that once it is counted, we'll have a clear winner in that race? Right. So there are definitely a a few spots in Pennsylvania where there's more than a few votes outstanding. It does seem that there are a fair number of mail ballots that still need to be counted in some counties. Among them, probably most notably, is Lancaster County. Or sorry, I think it's pronounced Lancaster County in Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken. There's a Lancaster County in Virginia. So I, as a Virginia native, sometimes screw that up. Anyway, Lancaster County had a issue with 
ballots, there was some sort of typo or I think it was there was a reading error. And so they're having to remark ballots that were submitted because the ones that were mailed in like can't be read by the machines. So this is causing a delay in actually counting many thousands of ballots. I think the news report I saw was perhaps it's 20,000 ballots. So in a race this close, that's a lot of ballots with 2,000 vote margin right now. In that county, McCormick and Oz are running very evenly. So I think it's a little difficult to say just how much each candidate might benefit, though in general, mail ballots have been better for McCormick. He's winning in the statewide absentee vote by about nine or 10 points of the votes that we have so far. But at the same time, if many ballots were submitted you know, sort of at the last minute, those might be voters who maybe voted for Oz or Barnett and not Cormick. So that's just sort of an example of the uncertainty among the outstanding votes. And isn't it something that mail ballots in a Republican primary might be decisive? Listeners, I am making a uh, not so veiled reference to the 2020 election and the very serious accusations of voter fraud that it came about from it and just the totally ungrounded belief that something happened there that didn't. And, and in Pennsylvania, again, no less. It'll be interesting to see, given kind of the partisan split we've seen in polls around trust around mail ballots, particularly with Republican voters, and seeing that erode over time, you know, how that plays into this race in particular. So that's to say, currently, Oz leads there. But if the absentee ballots were to put McCormick over the edge, would Republican voters basically accept that? Is that kind of the question you're asking, Sarah? That is, yeah. I mean, it seems likely that former President Trump would have a non-tweet or not tweet, whatever we're calling these statements he puts out that then end up on Twitter anyway about this situation if mail ballots ended up putting McCormick over. To be clear, we don't know if that's actually going to happen. And there definitely is some election day vote that still needs to be counted in some places. So just how all this shakes out is it's just really hard to say. I just think the irony is rich. <laughs> oh, oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, have we heard any rumblings so far about the illegitimacy of absentee votes? You know, one example we have is Representative Madison Cawthorn lost in North Carolina's 11th last night. He conceded. He called the victor, didn't make a fuss about election fraud. It was an extremely close race there as well, not nearly as close as this one. But have we so far in any Republican primaries heard of candidates questioning the results based on these ultimately unfounded fraud claims from 2020? That's a really good point, Galen. Nothing is jumping to mind of that having happened yet. Jeff, check me. I have not heard anything yet. I mean, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But it's a good point that, right, Cawthorn conceded, I think, even before the race was like officially projected by a lot of different outlets. So democracy is still working in some instances. And I don't mean to suggest otherwise. Do we have a sense of when we might know the results of the Republican Senate primary in Pennsylvania? Well, I mean, I will say that the expectation is that mess in Lancaster County, it's going to take a few days to clean that whole situation up and get those ballots counted. So I don't know when we're going to know the result. Maybe if we're lucky, we'll have a better idea by like the end of this week. And especially if the margin is inside of a half a percentage point, And if the margin is, you know, what it is right now, which is, you know, like two tenths of a percentage point, it's not entirely out of the realm for a recount to 
shuffle things if things are extremely close, of course. And there would be an automatic recount, as I think you said, Galen, inside of that half percentage point margin. Yeah, on that note, I mean, I've seen a lot of outlets kind of start to cast the race there as going to a recount. Like it's just a done deal because the expectation is that the margin won't close enough. Yeah, so I want to move on since I think we'll come back to this race perhaps on Monday or when we get results. But before we do, Kathy Barnett's performance was ultimately not as good as I think some expected going into that race. It was still relatively close. She got 25% compared to Oz and McCormick's 31%. Is there anything to say there about the ecosystem overreacting to late stage momentum? Were the polls off at all? What can we say about that fizzle that came from the Barnett sort of burst at the end? And is it because of Trump? Looking at the polling in the final days of this race, I think on the one hand, there was truly a surge for Barnett. I mean, her ending up at 25% would not be terribly far off from where the polls had her at the end. But at the same time, I think some of the late polls actually underestimated McCormick pretty significantly. And that's sort of interesting because, you know, throughout this race, it had been mostly Oz and McCormick won two in, in the polls until Barnett had this sort of late surge and in a few polls was actually even ahead of McCormick. So, you know, I think it just speaks to the difficulties of polling a primary in particular. I mean, you have to remember, in a general election, pollsters are helped out by the fact that most people who identify as Republican are going to vote for the Republican candidate, and most people who identify as Democratic are going to vote for the Democratic candidate. And that's true of independents who lean toward each party as well. But in a primary, you know, a voter might like a couple of the candidates and might be sort of wavering. And maybe they told a pollster, well, I think I'm going to vote for Barnett. They've gotten energized by some of the news coverage, but they got into the voting booth and they're like, ah, but I think Oz is probably the better chance to actually win. And so they vote for Oz when they actually get in there. I think that the difficulty of teasing out the situation where a voter could like multiple candidates and vacillate is always a factor in primary polling and a reason why they tend to be much more error prone. <laughs> it's what makes covering the primaries so fun because there's always like, I feel like at least one surprise in the evening. Yeah. For Jeff's point, you know, the polls just aren't as accurate. Absolutely. So looking at the Democratic side when it comes to the Senate primaries in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor there, ultimately won by 33 points. It wasn't close. The polls suggested that it wouldn't be close. That doesn't necessarily seem like it was always preordained. Connor Lamb, representative, was something of a Democratic darling in the early days of the anti-Trump resistance, you know, winning his special election in 2018 in that pretty Trumpy district in Western Pennsylvania. To what does John Fetterman, the more progressive candidate in the race, owe his easy victory ultimately? Or to what does Connor Lamb Oh, his pretty solid failure. Marijuana. Marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just had to get a wisecrack in there. Fetterman is a big proponent of legalizing marijuana and almost starts all of his campaign stops talking about that. But no, on a more serious note, something we were talking about on the live blog was this question of electability, this question of outsider candidates, the appeal they hold, and whether Democrats, if we're seeing a shift there, that they want more of a fighter politician representing them. That's something we've documented and talked a lot about in terms of Republicans and kind of 
kind of like the ethos of Trump and the model he put forward. But I think there's a real question of like, to what extent are we seeing that appeal hold true among Democrats? And Fetterman, of course, you know, it's not like he was a complete political newcomer, you know, as lieutenant governor in the state was well established. And I think a hard road for Lamb, despite his popularity in 2018, to hope. Yeah, I mean, I think to Sarah's point, there are also some sort of classic campaign things we can touch on here. It's like Fetterman was a statewide official. And now granted, he was elected on a ticket. Pennsylvania does not elect lieutenant governors on their own in November. They have a, sort of a, a shotgun wedding system where governor and lieutenant governor are nominated in separate primaries, but then they're thrown together on the same ticket when you get to November. So Fetterman was not elected. He was elected in his own right in terms of winning the nomination in 2018 for lieutenant governor. But he was with Tom Wolf, who was winning re-election in 2018. So Fetterman's like statewide electoral credibility is is kind of tough to say. But he's been lieutenant governor. He's been very visible as lieutenant governor during the COVID pandemic, of course. And Fetterman raised a lot of money. He raised a lot more than Lamb, which I think there was a thought that Lamb would be a better fundraiser considering a rising star visibility to to his candidacy, I think Fetterman was able to sort of use his better notoriety, his interesting profile as this like six, eight bearded dude who, yeah, talks about things like legalizing marijuana, but is like a gun owner and like, uh, you know, just kind of a, an interesting profile. And there's a thought that he might have a little more crossover appeal because maybe he has some sort of idiosyncratic vibes, if you will. It's all about the vibes as always. So his vibes are idiosyncratic, but when it comes to things like abortion, he doesn't support restrictions on abortion. He is for Medicare for all. He's been a little more muddled on fracking, but he's not anti-fracking. In a state like Pennsylvania, in a red-leaning environment, do some of his more progressive positions make it difficult for someone like him to get elected, whether it's Oz or McCormick? on the other side, how should we think of this as a general election prospect? I think it actually matters quite a bit, whether it's Oz or McCormick. In that McCormick runs away with it and Oz, it's competitive? Well, I mean, runs away with it is a strong, I would not put it that way. Okay. I think the thing is, though, if you're thinking about like suburban Philadelphia voters who may have once leaned Republican, but have sort of shifted toward the Democrats to some extent in recent times in the Trump era, McCormick, even though he has really kind of dived in as hard and fast on the deep end to try to come off as sort of a big time Trump supporter, can certainly profile himself, model himself in a way that is sort of a a more classical Republican fare. And I could see him, you know, holding down Democratic margins in like the Philadelphia suburbs. Like I would expect him to lose those counties, but not by massive margins the way things have been trending in recent years. By comparison, Oz is much more of a wild card to me. So I just don't know exactly how that's going to play out in a general election. But I do think it's more likely that Oz is going to sort of start out with higher unfavorables. I mean, he already has higher unfavorables among Republicans, for goodness sake, and might be able to win a nomination purely with a a small plurality and a hugely split primary vote. I think Fetterman would prefer to to maybe face Oz uh, given all that, although – it is true that McCormick is sort of very rich guy, like former hedge fund CEO, maybe fits better with the kind of person Fetterman, his, his messaging might run against. But I do think Oz is more concerning to Republican strategists, if you will. 
And the other thing, you made this point on the live blog last night, Galen, in reference to the governor's race, but looking at morning consult state level approval data for President Biden, he's currently underwater by 14 points in the state. And so that's going to be hard to surmount for Fetterman, regardless of who he's running against. Because as we've talked about, the nationalization of our politics and partisanship is one hell of a drug and it's stronger than ever. While Fetterman has a interesting profile and maybe has some crossover appeal, you know, one thing we found in the 2016 election was an interesting crossover between like Sanders voters in the primary and Trump voters in the general. Wasn't a huge crossover, but it was like 10% looking at CES data from Harvard. And so it is an interesting question, you know, like can Fetterman actually kind of win some of these like working class independent voters? I mean, I think we saw pretty emphatically in 2020, Biden didn't hold that kind of appeal with voters. And so the suburbs really paved more of his path to victory. Can Fetterman cut against that? I think that's a pretty big ask. Yeah, that's a really good point, Sarah. So when it does come to the nationalization of politics and partisanship trumping lots of things these days, let's talk about the gubernatorial race, where I think to a lesser extent, partisanship rules the day. And that may be a significant question because Republicans have nominated Doug Mastriano, who's a very controversial candidate, far right wing, leading proponent of claiming that the 2020 election was illegitimate. You know, his ideology could be described as Christian nationalism. He's going to be running against the Democratic nominee who ran away with the nomination last night, Josh Shapiro, the attorney general in Pennsylvania. Looking at that number that you cited, Sarah, that Biden is 14 points underwater in Pennsylvania, does that mean that even someone as controversial, so to say, as Mastriano, could ultimately win the governorship in Pennsylvania, or given last night's results, does it look like it's Shapiro's to lose? That's the million dollar question, right? I think a lot of reporting kind of making sense of the results coming out of last night are making the case that, look, you know, there was a coordinated effort among like Republican elites and politicians to not elect Mastriano, to field one of the other contenders in the primary. But it didn't work. And I think, you know, this is not a political environment that favors Democrats. So we shouldn't discount the real possibility that Mastriano is the state's next governor. And, you know, Mastriano is one of the most extreme of the extremes. He was at the January 6th insurrection. He participated in it. He has time and again said that he does think that the election was fraudulent and that the legislature, you know, has the right to overturn the results in Pennsylvania. He led a quote unquote audit there. It's a real, you know, troubling development for democracy. And I think as Amanda Carpenter at the slightly conservative leaning Bulwark publication made a point this morning around how the real question now is, okay, Republican elites and leaders going into that primary did not want Mastriano, but what do they do now? Remember, it was similar to Trump, and yet they all rallied behind him. Does that happen now? And I think that's a real question and something to watch closely. No, I think Mastriano could very well win things go his way. I think the situation is more of a, does he just sort of run behind a Republican-leaning environment enough that, that Josh Shapiro, who, to be clear, ran ahead of Biden in the 2020 election when he was winning re-election uh, as attorney general, can Shapiro sort of run far enough ahead 
and Mastriano far enough behind where the environment is for Shapiro to win. That seems quite possible. I mean, I think we've seen in places like Pennsylvania's first congressional district where Brian Fitzpatrick has easily won re-election, <laughs> even as the Philly suburbs have trended Democratic. There is some split ticket voting in those places. And that's where like the question of what happens in the McCormick-Oz race actually becomes interesting to me because I can imagine if McCormick ends up being the GOP nominee for Senate, that you actually could see some sizable split ticket voting, which you know we know there's not a ton of split ticket voting anymore. But governor's races are not as nationalized as races for federal office. So I do think that there's a reason why a lot of sort of prognosticators sort of immediately said, all right, we're going to make this a, a lean Democratic race for governor the moment Mastriano won the nomination. But of course, they didn't make it safe Democratic. And I think that's in light of the environment being so Republican leaning. I'll be curious for what our forecast says sometime in June. Yes. Get excited, listeners. It is coming. It is. Nate's hard at work. That's why he's not on the podcast. (laughs) Okay, so let's move on from Pennsylvania because there were indeed four other states that held primary elections last night. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. I just want to ask broadly, were there trends in terms of which kinds of candidates on the Democratic side or Republican side were winning House races in these states in North Carolina, Kentucky, Idaho, and Oregon? You know, I think actually it depends a little bit on how the Oregon uh, fifth plays out. If Kurt Schrader, who's sort of a, a blue dog, moderate Democratic representative, he loses renomination to Jamie McLeod Skinner. And right now he's well behind, but there's an issue with reporting in his home county, which might be the place where he runs up his biggest margins. So we're not... 100% sure how that's going to play out yet, but he's got he's definitely behind in a way that would make me say he's an underdog at this point. If he loses, you know, you can sort of point to his defeat. You could point to in, back in Pennsylvania actually it looks like it, it's extremely close and that might be a race that goes to recount too, but in Pennsylvania's 12th congressional district, um, you had a progressive Summer Lee very narrowly leading there. If she holds on, I, I think you could make a case that it was a, it was like a a decent night for progressives. But at the same time, you know, moving on to North Carolina in the first district there where G.K. Butterfield is retiring, a longtime Democratic representative from, from eastern North Carolina, the more moderate Don Davis, who's a state legislator, pretty easily won the nomination in there over Erica Smith, who was sort of seen as this, this progressive candidate. So I think it's a mixed bag, but I do think that what happens with Schrader could end up playing into the narrative one way or the other. At least on the Republican side in North Carolina, the candidates who won there, particularly 
Sandy Smith in the first, who had been the 2020 nominee, has a troubled track record, accusations of domestic violence, financial impropriety. She won her primary. That kind of will give Democrats an opportunity perhaps to win that seat in what will be a challenging environment. And then similarly in the 13th, I think it's a little bit more of an open question because Bo Hines, one of Trump's endorsements, just doesn't have a political track record, but doesn't have strong ties to that district. So also could be an opportunity opportunity for Democrats, though, as we'll talk about, you know, the Senate race is probably still going to remain hard for them to win, just given it's a statewide election and North Carolina still leans more red than blue. I don't think there were any surprises in the Senate primary in North Carolina, were there? No, I mean, Sherry Beasley had long been seen as the sort of the presumptive Democratic nominee. She's a former chief justice of the state Supreme Court there. She very handily beat back her some dude opponents. <laughs> but in the Republican primary, you know, for a while, it looked like it might turn into a really competitive race. There you had really the, the two main figures were, were Republican Representative Ted Budd and former Governor Pat McCrory. And, you know, early on, McCrory led in a lot of the polls. Former governor had a lot of name ID, but Budd had Trump's endorsement and he had millions of dollars in outside spending support from the Conservative Club for Growth. And in the end, Bud very easily won. It's kind of amazing that this race even once seemed competitive because Bud ended up winning by a little over 30 points. So it was not at all close in the end. Yeah. Jacob Rubashkin from Inside Elections made the point on the live blog last night that Gosh, you wish if you were McCroy, McQuarrie, that the primary had not moved given all the litigation over North Carolina's maps because it was supposed to be in mid-March and things were very different in the primary then. Yeah, I actually watched Ted Budd's victory speech and then also watched Doug Mastriano's victory speech. And so you got to see just two sort of very different visions. They're both Trump endorses ultimately, but still two pretty different visions about how you run a general election campaign. So when Bud thanked Trump and talked about aspects of campaigning and was conciliatory towards his opposition, etc. But when he got to the general election portion of his victory speech, he hit three things. He hit inflation then he hit immigration, border control, and then he hit gas prices, which is, again, sort of also inflation. And people were holding signs that said hashtag Bidenflation or Bidenflation with a no smoking symbol or whatever over it. So you got a pretty good taste of what a statewide Republican Senate campaign looks like in a relatively competitive state, but ultimately a more Republican state than Pennsylvania. But the Mastriano victory speech was like, CRT, grievances over how COVID was handled, masks on kids, a lot of things that we know from our own polling with Ipsos aren't actually at the fore of voters' minds right now. Inflation was not ultimately the marquee thing that Mastriano hit in his speech. There was a lot of other, other grievances there. And Pennsylvania is more competitive than North Carolina. Of course, Mastriano is running for governor. Ted Budd is running for Senate, but still statewide races and battleground states, just very different visions, even between two candidates, again, that were both endorsed by Trump. Yeah, that's such a good point. And, you know, one thing we learned from the 2021 gubernatorial elections in Virginia and New Jersey 
was even though Yunkin, you know, often got a lot of attention for how he was talking about critical race theory in the state and for actions he's taken as governor, arguably the through line there in both races, which were very close, was the economy. So that's a good point, Galen, in terms of maybe uh, Mastriano wants to pivot his message a little. So the push alert that I got the most traction on my phone last night was, of course, Madison Cawthorn's loss in North Carolina. I think even the BBC sent me a push alert saying that Representative Madison Cawthorn lost renomination in the state. We talked about this on Monday. So at the time, Nathaniel was saying he thought that he would still hold on to the seat. Nathaniel's not here to defend that position. So we won't throw shade on it. But ultimately, what is there to say about Cawthorn's loss last night? I'll defend Nathaniel because at the end of the day, if Cawthorn gets like 36%, he wins. He got 32% and lost. And that isn't really that big of a difference. And in considering that there were like, I don't know, eight candidates running in that district, things move around a little bit. Cawthorn has, I don't know, one less thing that, that pops up here in the last few weeks. Maybe he holds on. Maybe it doesn't quite reach a critical mass for him to lose. And he's just like sort of heavily damaged going into the general election. Not that it would matter because it's a very Republican leaning seat and he would win re-election. But, you know, just things sort of reached a critical mass. And I think importantly, there was enough of an effort by Republicans who did not like Cawthorn to rally around State Senator Chuck Edwards, who ended up narrowly defeating Cawthorn. But even then, Edwards only got about a third of the vote. So I think it's just, you know, the vote was highly fragmented, but just enough opposition to Cawthorn was able to coalesce around the leading opponent. And Cawthorn dropped just enough to lose. But I think it also speaks to how difficult it is to beat an incumbent because Cawthorn still <laughs> very well could have won very narrowly with a pretty low percentage of the vote. Going into that race, we didn't have a ton of polls, but the one we had by the same pollster had shown that his lead had narrowed from 49% to then 38% with the other candidates at 21% and Edwards at 21%. Clearly, you know, the numbers continued to shift at that point. That was in mid-March when we had that poll. And I think as you know, you made the point on the live blog, Galen, there is a real question of how much of these attacks on Cawthorn were really drilling into maybe Republicans' voters' fears around homophobia. Certainly many of the scandals that embroiled Cawthorn had not so subtle veiled insinuations. Obviously, we can't price out the toll that that took, but it definitely seems like a real factor in this race. All right. So... How many incumbents have lost so far in this primary season? Just two? We're at two, but pending Schrader's situation in Oregon. So it could be three by the time we're past this primary. David McKinley from West Virginia lost on May 10th. That's the other one. But he was in an incumbent versus incumbent race. So slightly different situation there. Someone had to lose. Exactly. What's the replacement level number of incumbents who lose in a primary season? The thing that's difficult to say about that is that we are in the type of cycle where that happens the most, which is one right after redistricting. You almost always see the number of incumbents who lose primaries for the House jump very noticeably in years ending in two because states have redistricted and you might have incumbents facing incumbents or an incumbent 
trying to win re-election or win renomination in a seat where maybe they only represent about half of it and some good challenger comes in and beats them. So years ending in two are always when you see the most incumbents lose their primaries in the House. That's good to know. So we have on this podcast given Kentucky short shrift. We have also not talked nearly as much about Idaho and Oregon for a clear reason. Those races haven't been as sort of consequential or competitive in large part. And haven't been called. Yes. I met on the preview podcast. We didn't talk about them as much either, but also for good reason on this podcast, many of them haven't been called. I mentioned at the top that ultimately the governor of Idaho, Little, is going to win renomination against the lieutenant governor who Trump endorsed. Looks like the margin there is 20 or so points. So ultimately, that Trump endorsement was not a golden ticket to nomination in a Republican primary. But what more do we have to say about what is outstanding in those three states and, and what we we already know based on the primary results? Well, I think one of the interesting things is that while Little did win renomination, he only at the moment has about 53% of the vote. So, you know, in some other hypothetical world where all of the opposition coalesces around one candidate, maybe he's in more trouble. And it is worth remembering that when Little won the Republican primary in 2018, it was a very splintered field, and he beat now former House member Raul Labrador by, I think it was about five points, if I recall correctly, in a pretty close race and with like 30-something percent of the vote. So I think it just sort of speaks to like Little was strong enough to win re-nomination, but that some of the opposition to his governance, which has been conservative, but the whole thing was that Janice McEachin, the lieutenant governor who was challenging him in the gubernatorial primary, uh, every time Little would leave the state and she was acting governor, she would do things like switch his policies on COVID and and basically take a a looser view. She was very anti-COVID restriction. And obviously she ended up getting Trump's endorsement and McEachin ran very hard on the 2020 election was fraudulent message. And the fact that she only got about a third of the vote But I think it just speaks to the fact that like there is definitely a strong feeling in the Republican Party of buying into some of those messages to the point that even uh, it seems like decently liked incumbent can only win a little over the majority of the vote. And I should say in the attorney general race, uh, you know, I mentioned Labrador earlier. He was running, making a political comeback, running against the very longtime incumbent, Lawrence Wasden, for attorney general. And it looks like Labrador has won. So Wasden, who interestingly, did not join in a bunch of other attorneys general, Republican attorneys general uh, after the 2020 election in a lawsuit, basically trying to overturn the election results. He didn't join because he said, I don't want this to be like a, a precedent that leads to like Idaho's sovereignty and its ability to control its elections to be threatened. That message, while very traditionally conservative, very limited government and mindset and very federalist, you know, this traditional understanding of the, of the term, apparently rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. He's, he's not even at 40% of the vote right now uh, as he looks on his way to defeat. So there are plenty of signs in here that the kind of thing that you saw in like the Pennsylvania governor's primary for the Republicans is elsewhere too, for sure. 
Right. You know, a point Nathaniel Rakich made on the live blog for the attorney general and secretary of state race in Idaho is that the majority of votes have been cast for election deniers in those two races. Now, to be clear, we don't have a call yet in the secretary of state race. And interestingly enough, it does look like we will have a split decision, meaning, you know, someone who is more aggressively pro-Trump being the next attorney general in Idaho, whereas the only candidate to have said that Biden won the 2020 election in those two races in Idaho, McGrain, looks like they will pull out in that race. But, you know, not everything's been counted. Their lead right now is just three points. But it just goes to show that, you know, it's really hard to build neat narratives at this point that only the Trumpiest candidates are winning, only the election deniers. We're seeing a lot of split decisions in states. And it's interesting to unpack what is going through voters' minds. Who votes for Labrador and McGrain, for instance? All right. Well, on that note, we are going to wrap things up and we will come back to some of the outstanding results on next week's podcast. But that's it for now. We can all go shower, go back to sleep, whatever we got to do here. Thanks so much, Sarah and Jeffrey. Thanks, Galen. Thank you, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Emily Vineski is on audio editing. And Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.